Welcome to The Landscape, your show about the outdoors and America's public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah. On the show today, we're talking to Congresswoman Melanie Stansbury, who represents the Albuquerque area in New Mexico. Representative Stansbury replaced Deb Holland after Holland was tapped to lead the Interior Department earlier this year. She grew up in Albuquerque and served as a state legislator before winning her seat in Congress. Melanie is possibly the most qualified legislator in Congress today. She's worked on the National Council on Environmental Quality at Sandia National Laboratories, in the Office of Management and Budget, and as a staffer for the United States Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. We'll talk to her about how climate change and public lands played into her campaign, as well as the reconciliation process playing out right now. But first, some big news. As you have no doubt heard, President Biden just restored two national monuments in Utah. The president returned Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante national monuments back to their original sizes, undoing President Trump's attempt to shrink those monuments by 85 and 50 percent, respectively. That is, of course, great news for the protection of both landscapes, which contain some of the richest cultural and scientific artifacts in the country, But the restorations may not be permanent. Utah state leaders are already talking about challenging those new protections in court. Public lands journalist and recent podcast guest here, Jonathan Thompson, in his newsletter pointed to the text of the proclamations themselves, which President Biden rewrote to include much more detail than the language that was in the proclamations signed by Presidents Clinton and Obama. The idea, Thompson speculates, is that that could help justify the sizes of the monuments should the proclamations end up being challenged in court. Another former podcast guest here, Professor Mark Squalacci, told E&E News he thinks it's unlikely the Supreme Court would take up the case since lower courts have consistently ruled that presidents do have broad discretion under the Antiquities Act. But, Squalacci said, that does not preclude another attempt to shrink the monuments if or when the White House changes hands again. Yeah, so it was a busy weekend here in San Juan County, as you can imagine. Um, I was able to attend a very last-minute gathering on Cedar Mesa on Friday, which was arranged by Utah Dene Bikea. That's a group that's primarily Navajo-led and has been pushing for the monument. Um, They were actually the ones who came up with the original idea to push for a monument or a landscape-level protection for the Bears Ears region. Former Interior Secretary Bruce Babbitt was there. Writer Terry Tempest Williams was there. Um, And then Kenneth Maryboy, the Navajo County Commissioner here in San Juan County, was there as well. And a lot of Navajo elders who were on the board of Utah Dene Bikea and um, advisors to the group. So that was pretty amazing to get to celebrate that with people who have really been fighting for the monument for the past 10 years. I'd imagine it must have been a pretty pretty big shift for everyone in our broader conservation world and specifically in in the indigenous advocacy world, we're starting to get pretty impatient with President Biden that we're nine months into the administration and still no movement on Bears Ears and we were closing in close on Indigenous Peoples Day. I mean, what was the mood like to suddenly realize, oh, th- this is finally a-, a victory worth celebrating? The mood... I would describe as like reserved optimism. Um, people people seemed happy 
Um, I actually arrived after they did a ceremonial dance and song or or a prayer. I'm actually not sure. I was told that there was some sort of um, celebration before I arrived. Um, but when I got there, everyone was having lunch and chatting, and people seemed sort of maybe relieved more than anything that it was that it had been restored. Um, it wasn't as sort of joyful as maybe the first time around, um, and maybe as it would have been month if it happened, you know, back in the spring. It was just sort of like a sense of relief that it finally actually happened. Um, so that's sort of the vibe. And then, of course, a lot of the people there know intimately that there's a lot of work to do um, now that the monument is restored. There's their management plans to be rewritten. Um, and then, of course, probably legal challenges to fend off. So it was a sort of cautious optimism and relief. All right. Well, let's uh, head on to your conversation with Congresswoman Stansbury. Sounds good. So we're lucky to be joined by Representative Melanie Stansbury today. Um, Congress is, excuse me, the House is on a two-week break, so we were able to catch a few minutes of her time. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Katie. It's great to be here with you today. So let's start with the basics. Tell us about the district you represent and why you wanted to get into politics. Well, first of all, um, my district is New Mexico's first congressional district, which is right in the center of New Mexico and includes Albuquerque and a number of tribal and Pueblo communities around the Albuquerque area and several rural communities to the east and the south of our city. And the reason I went into politics is really it's a natural extension of my lifelong work in conservation and community development. And I've always had such a strong passion for science and sustainability and social justice work. And in some ways, I think that I was sort of destined to end up working on these issues in public service. I was actually born in Farmington, New Mexico, which is in the Four Corners, and my parents both worked in the energy industry at the time. My mom was actually a crane mechanic that worked at the San Juan power plant. My dad worked in the oil fields there. And when the bottom dropped out in the early 80s, they moved to Albuquerque, which is where I grew up. And especially over the years, as I've worked more and more on climate issues, that history of my own family of having worked in the industry is, you know, really informed my thoughts about just transition and how do we really transform our economy as we're thinking about climate change. But I grew up in Albuquerque and I always had such a love for science. And my first job was actually as a science educator working at the Natural History Museum in New Mexico, teaching kids about water science and ecology. And that job ultimately led me to go back to school and study water governance. And I uh, worked as a researcher looking at water and land rights in New Mexico and worked in communities all over the state and ultimately end up, ended up going to work in Washington in 2010 when I had the opportunity to intern in the White House Council on Environmental Quality in the Obama administration and then was hired to work in the budget office. And uh, I worked on conservation programs and climate issues, and I worked with tribes all over the country on tribal affairs, and then worked in the Senate as a staffer in the Energy Committee on Science and Water. And I moved home in 2017, in part because after being in D.C. for a number of years, I realized that I really wanted to bring the work that I was doing and the fight 
back home. And I got asked very quickly if I would consider running for office. And I stepped up and ran for the state house in 2018, like tens of thousands of women who ran that year. And so I served in the state legislature for a term and won my reelection in November just shortly before Secretary Holland was asked to be our next Secretary of Interior. And um, quickly after, I was asked if I would run for this seat, and I stepped up and ran. And really, I see all of this work as part of that continuum that I've done my entire life of working in our communities, working on land and water issues, working on social justice issues and community development, and just serving the people of our communities and, and doing that work at both the local level and the national level. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um could you tell us a little bit about the role that climate change and also public lands played in your campaign? Yes. Well, I very explicitly ran on a climate platform, and it was interesting to me how much people at the national level were both surprised by and encouraged by me doing so. Um, and in part because I had been working on climate issues during much of my seven years working in Washington during the Obama administration and my time working in the Senate Energy Committee. But when I ran for office in the state legislature in 2018, we were just coming out of eight years of a state administration in New Mexico that was very anti-climate action. And that administration had had a real chilling effect on climate action in this state, not only in terms of regulation of industry and addressing climate uh, resilience and our carbon footprint, but also about teaching and talking about climate change. Our schools and museums and public institutions were, in many cases, afraid to even talk about climate change. And so when I was elected in 2018, I had just finished, you know, my time working in Washington, working on the president's climate action plan, working on climate legislation, and I was ready to really bring that work back home to New Mexico. So my first session in the legislature, I drafted and carried a comprehensive climate resilience bill with the governor. And I'll tell you, people thought I was crazy. They were like, this is political suicide. What are you doing? And partly because I had flipped a conservative district from red to blue and people thought at the time that, you know, it would really be um, not politically smart to do so. But we had actually pulled on climate change in my district during our campaign. And there had been other public opinion polls during that time. And we knew that our state overwhelmingly supported climate action, including independents and Republicans. And in fact, you know, New Mexico is a place filled with scientists and engineers and creatives and um, land-based communities, farmers. And so people here really, really care about these issues. And, you know, at the end of the day, part of why you step up into these roles is to lead. And there's no more important issue than to lead on than climate change. So um, we did not pass that bill in our first session, in part because we ran out of time in our short legislature. But over the next, uh, over that year and the following year, I passed two really critical pieces of legislation that dovetail with climate change, including a Water Data Act and a Grid Modernization Act. And both of those bills passed with bipartisan support and Republican co-sponsors. And they were real lessons in how do you advance 
policy, sound scientifically based policy that brings the best ideas from our communities, that's based in science, and that really addresses the core issues around our ability to fight climate change and to respond to it. And so I think having had those experiences and heading into my congressional race, I knew that the people of New Mexico are demanding climate action. I knew that we could craft legislation once I was elected that would be meaningful and impactful. And I knew that the communities that I had worked with during my time in the legislature from social justice groups and frontline uh, worker groups to the conservation community to industry would support the work that we had done. And so I felt very confident that heading into the congressional race, it was really important that we focus on climate change. And it's for that reason that it continues to be one of the central issues that I'm working on and also which our communities are continuing to tell us we have to work on. And of course, you know, public lands, New Mexico is a place where like much of the West, much of the land is uh, in federal hands and federal trust but also a place where our communities have deep ties to the land. And in fact, some of the history of federal lands is deeply painful for our communities. You know, we have 23 federally recognized tribes and pueblos in our, in our state. And for many of our tribes and pueblos, they lost lands over the, the history of settlement in this area. And our area was first settled by the Spanish in the 1500s. And we have land grant communities that are very much tied to the lands and waters of our state. And our farming and ranching communities are tied to the state. So public lands, also traditional lands, connections to land and water are truly part and parcel of our state's identity and the cultural fabric of our communities. And so it's not just about promoting wilderness and outdoor recreation and all of the things that we often talk about in the West, but also about restoring traditional lands, protecting traditional lands and and landscape uses, and also, you know, lifting up and continuing the traditions of the many cultures that are here in our state. Wow, that's a lot to work on (laughs) and to have in mind at once. Um, One thing that I... And, and everyone on my team is really interested in is sort of the the conversation around energy development in New Mexico, because so much of your government, um, your state government is funded through energy development, yet it's making climate change worse. So I'm curious how you talk about that issue, how you think about that issue and what you think um, the way forward looks like. I think that New Mexico, like many other places in the West that have economies that are based in energy development are struggling with this same existential question. And, you know, you look at places like Alaska and Louisiana and Texas, and, you know, the most difficult question for our state in New Mexico is how do you develop a more diversified and sustainable economy not only at a statewide level, but in the places where people's jobs, livelihoods, and well-being are tied to these economic opportunities. And at this moment, 
those are really difficult answers. And so part of what I have done over my time in public service is really looked at how can we help to promote a more just transition at the community-based level. And so some of the work that I think is most important that's happening in New Mexico and which I think can be a real model for our nation is work that a lot of our community organizations are doing around just transition. So this last legislative session, I carried a comprehensive climate bill that had three parts to it. One was dealing with our carbon footprint and putting into place overall carbon reduction targets to meet our Paris Accord um, you know, uh, responsibilities. The second was dealing with resilience and making sure that our state agencies were providing tools and resources and collaborative opportunities to work on climate resilience. But the, I think perhaps the most important part were provisions that were led by my colleague, Angelica Rubio, who's a legislator from the South and a bunch of social justice and frontline worker organizations where they had spent several years traveling the state, holding listening sessions and talking to communities and saying, how do we imagine our economic future? How do we imagine a more sustainable future in places where right now jobs are highly dependent, especially on oil and gas and mining and other activities? And I think at the end of the day, it's really important that the community's voices and dreams and hopes really lead those conversations. And our role as public officials is to first and foremost, listen, and to help to identify tools and resources that we can bring home to support our communities and empower themselves as they're on that economic diversification journey. I know that your answer touched on this, but where does that revenue come from if it's not coming from oil and gas? Well, at the end of the day, that's part of the whole existential question, I think, about how not only the West, but the world is going to transition its economies. You know, New Mexico has had a historic boom in energy production over the last several years, and it has brought in a huge amount of revenue to our state that um, is being invested and which ultimately, you know, will help to build infrastructure and support programs. But it's a very boom and bust cycle because that revenue is highly dependent on markets that we have no control over. You know, it's really based on the price of oil and gas at the international level. And so diversifying the economy is a long game. There's there's not an easy answer short term. But I also strongly believe that part of how we get there is by working with industry because industry has the capacity and has been investing in research and development and technology for many decades. And I believe can ultimately make a transition to operate in carbon neutral ways in different times and spaces. So it's not one simple answer. I think that we have to pursue all answers. We have to work with industry on, you know, technological and um, other innovations. We have to work to diversify our economy and we have to make those carbon emission reductions to achieve our ultimate goals. But, you know, this is why this issue is the biggest issue of our time, because for the last hundred years, our planet built an economic system that depended on certain kinds of energy that we learned actually harmed the planet. And so we're 
trying to figure out now how do we make this transition as a planetary system so that we can continue to live sustainably. Yeah, there's no easy answer is the answer. (laughs) Um, So another similarly hard and um, stubborn question, I'd like to ask you about water and what you think the state can do and what you think should happen on the federal level to ensure um, our water future in the West and in New Mexico. So I've worked on water issues my entire career. And, you know, I don't think of them as stubborn issues. And I think a lot of people look at water issues in the West and there's so much complexity around water because of especially the last 150 years, the way in which infrastructure was developed, the way our legal and water rights systems were set up, the way that our regulatory regimes were set up. But when you sort of simplify it to its most basic level, truly water is life. And, you know, it is probably the most true axiom of every culture on the planet that water is, is life and fundamental to our survival. And, you know, I spent a lot of my graduate career and and research time studying water conflict. And there were some interesting studies done about a decade ago looking at water conflict because there was all this discussion about, you know, the wars of the future being about water. And what researchers found when they looked back over the course of thousands of years of history is that even though water was often a exacerbating factor in conflict between communities. And certainly there's a lot of institutional conflict over water that when it came down to it, communities ultimately always found ways to share water because there's something about water that is just so elemental to our survival and to our lives. And when you look at a place like New Mexico, that's very true in the cultures that have been here for many, many generations Our Pueblos and tribal communities have been here since time immemorial and survived through very difficult hydrological pasts. And our Spanish Hispano communities have survived many extreme droughts as well and have, you know, practices and customs that not only are resilient, but also about sharing. And so I think that we can draw on our traditional wisdom and knowledge as well as really the most high-tech innovations that are also available in the world right now. And so part of why I focused a lot during my career on water science and data and the modernization of our water infrastructure grid is that when you look at the impacts of climate change that we're already experiencing in the West, ultimately we're going to have to transition towards managing water in real time in much the way that we're having to do with our electric grid because When you look at the impacts of climate change in New Mexico, for example, we've seen over the last several decades, our snowpack has diminished, our water flows are not just diminished, but erratic. You know, two years ago, we had amongst the highest flows through the middle Rio Grande, and now we have amongst the lowest flows that we've seen in the last year, in the last season. And so how do you manage a very complex system at scale, at a watershed scale, you really need the most sophisticated data science and um, ability to use and optimize your infrastructure to make sure that our traditional communities have water, make sure that our cities have water, and that we can keep water in our rivers for the health and well-being of our ecosystems. So I think that the future is really about transforming 
our governance systems, our science and technological systems, and our infrastructure to be able to bring both that traditional knowledge and wisdom, as well as the most high-tech tools and infrastructure we can to manage for all of these things in real time. And that's how we're going to get through this resiliently. I love the idea of bringing sort of the old belief in getting along and sharing and the new technology together to bear on this very complicated problem. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the reconciliation bill that's going on right now. I mean, I don't really even know where to start because there's so much in it, but I'd love to just hear what it's been like from your perspective as a legislator. Um, how, what, what is your work look like right now? Like how, how are you engaging on this um, package? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's helpful for everyone to hear a little bit about how did we get here (laughs) and be reminded, what is it exactly that we're doing? Why is this issue of a giant infrastructure package and reconciliation package front and center in our political life right now? And it really starts with Um, you know, the election of President Joe Biden. And early on in his tenure earlier this year, he rolled out his vision and agenda for the United States. And it really fell into what he described as an American jobs plan and as an American families plan. And that jobs plan included, you know, massive infrastructures and massive investments in infrastructure and jobs and climate resilience And the American Families Plan was this transformational package of investments in our care economy in early childhood education and elder care, universal community college, expansion of health care, immigration reform, and all of these issues that are so critical to the well-being and health of our communities. And so as our Congress is engaged with the administration it became clear that those two ideas were going to be bifurcated into two separate packages. And there was an agreement made between all of the parties who had the opportunity to kind of put those packages forward that we would work on both of them. And so in August, the Senate passed out a bipartisan infrastructure package that really included mostly just bread and butter infrastructure, roads, bridges, some water infrastructure, but you know, a very, I don't want to diminish it because it is a significant investment in critical infrastructure, but it, it, it didn't end up including a lot of the climate provisions and, and even other important kinds of water infrastructure that is really important. So the reconciliation package is, it is probably the most comprehensive investment in American well-being since the New Deal. And the House once the Senate passed the sort of top line number for that bill, fleshed it out and, you know, really shaped the programs that ultimately would be funded through the bill. And when we returned back to Congress a couple of weeks ago in the House, um, it was clear that it was getting complicated. (laughs) And um, some of the folks who had originally agreed to the overall idea of moving these two bills together suddenly had changed their minds or had different ideas about how they should move. And everything sort of came to a head last week. And it was looking like we were going to be asked to vote on the infrastructure package first and not the reconciliation package. And about 60 of us, including myself, said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to hold the line. And 
especially the Progressive Caucus became really, I think, the central locus of that sort of act of resistance within the system to say, you know, we campaigned on this, we promised the American people this, this is what we are being asked to do to take climate action, to invest in families, to transform our economy so that it works for everyone and addresses inequalities. And we rebuild our economy after COVID in a way that is more fair and just and equitable. And so um, it all came to a head. And on Friday, Um, The president himself came down to the chambers and he met with the Democratic caucus in the House. And he said himself, you know, I'm not going to pass this infrastructure bill without the reconciliation bill. And so over the last few days, the president and leadership in both chambers and members who are key members involved in those negotiations have been working on a path forward. And I feel hopeful. I think that I think that ultimately we will get there, but there's still work to be done. And, you know, I want to emphasize, especially for listeners to this podcast, that what is included in that reconciliation bill is amongst the most significant provisions that will enable our country to actually meet its climate responsibilities, including cutting our carbon emissions by half of the required amount to meet our Paris Accord um, obligations. And so we need those provisions to remain in the reconciliation bill. And we're fighting really hard to make sure that there's meaningful emissions reductions. But it also includes huge investments in public lands, in wildlife conservation, and in water infrastructure. And in places like New Mexico, you know, investments in drinking water infrastructure for tribal communities that don't have safe drinking water. For irrigation infrastructure, I was able to secure $200 million in that package for our pueblos who have ancient systems that need um, investment and that have been long ignored over the last several decades. And so this reconciliation package is critical to the future of our country and will really put us on a path to sustainability in a way that we have not seen in our generation. Wow, that was a big week for you guys. (laughs) So what are you working on now, Get preparing to sort of go back into the fight? Well, we have a lot of things moving. Um, so right now we're back home. And so I'm here in New Mexico. and um, But we're going back to D.C. next week. Votes were just called on the debt ceiling. And it's very likely that we'll be called called back in the next few weeks to hopefully take a vote on reconciliation as well. But also, in addition to that, uh, we passed a continuing resolution uh, last week uh, through December 3rd, and we're still also working on appropriations bills. And those appropriations bills are um, themselves also transformative. So they include really important investments in all of our federal agencies. It's not just the sort of nuts and bolts operations, but this is President Joe Biden's budget and a Democratic Congress's budget. And so that budget itself is also very transformative. So we're engaged and working on all of those big projects and policies, but also we're working ourselves on a on a handful of really important issues around climate justice. We're working on some big bills on sort of rethinking some of the fundamentals of how we manage water in the West and some of the ways I was talking about earlier, especially around science and technology and collaborative watershed management. And we're working on a lot of issues around 
housing, homelessness, food security, and healthcare, which are really critical in New Mexico because our state really struggles economically, and those are the the needs that our communities have. So um, I know this is kind of a cheap question, but do you think that it's going to pass the reconciliation bill and the infrastructure bill? I do. I think it has to. And I think that the leadership in both chambers and the individuals who are at the negotiating table know that, that it's not only what we promise to deliver to the American people, but that it's our responsibility to get it done and that we have to get it done sooner than later. So I do believe that we'll get it done in the coming weeks. Awesome. Um, One question that's just come to mind that's not on our list is how you communicate what you're doing in Congress back to your constituents and how you sort of make these really complicated issues into things that can be easily communicated to your constituents. I think the American people are hungry to understand the process and what's happening in politics. And part of why I ran for public office after working as a staffer, you know, as somebody who was working on these issues, but sort of behind the scenes is that I saw the need to have a translator, somebody who could help to unpack what's happening and help make it more accessible to the public. So, um, you know, I think that a lot of times politicians don't give the public enough credit and um, it's really important to just engage with people and continue to have dialogue. So since I was elected earlier this summer, we've been doing listening sessions across our district. So during August and September, we did almost a dozen listening sessions in every community we could in our district. And just ask questions. What's on your mind? What do you care about? What questions can we answer? And I think people really appreciated that. This week, I've been holding a series of Zoom coffees with constituents just to talk about what's happening with reconciliation and the infrastructure package. And people are very tuned in. Oftentimes, you know, constituents themselves are spending a tremendous amount of time watching the news and digesting political information and have very sophisticated understandings of what's going on. But I think that what people really are looking for is an honest assessment of the process and how their voices and values and the things that they care about can be translated into things that have an impact and to really understand the process. And so I try to focus as much as possible on, you know, kind of doing that translational work. And so, you know, we use all the tools that we have, you know, social media, newsletters, coffees, listening sessions, and just continuing to engage and listen to our communities. Awesome. So I'll just throw you one more question, and it's sort of an open-ended one. Is there anything that um, folks aren't asking you about that you think they should be? You know, I get asked questions about every possible topic you can think of. (laughs) But, you know, I think especially for folks who care about conservation, What I would highlight is that, you know, many people who are interested in conservation have backgrounds in the sciences and themselves love the outdoors and really have a deep understanding of land and water. And I think that part of the transformation that's happening in our politics right now around climate change and conservation is that we've come to a sort of tipping point in planetary systems. And it's 
not enough anymore to just demand action on environmental issues. We need impact. And so I just really encourage people who are working on these issues to ask hard questions of our leaders and to ensure that, you know, when we are crafting legislative packages, that there's not just something in there for the environmental community, but that we are actually crafting legislation that is going to demonstrably restore our ecosystems, address the climate crisis, and ensure that we have resilience and sustainability for our communities for generations to come. I was going to ask you if you had any advice for us. (laughs) So you got there before I did. Um, Great. Well, I really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And before we go, congratulations to Congresswoman Stansberry's predecessor, now Interior Secretary Deb Holland, for running the Boston Marathon on Indigenous Peoples Day. Holland started running about 20 years ago, and she wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe ahead of the race, paying tribute to previous Indigenous runners and winners of the race, including Ellison Brown of the Narragansett, who won twice in 1936 and 39, and Tom Longboat of the Onondaga First Nation, who won in 1907. Holland also met with Patty Dillon. She's a three-time runner-up who's a member of the Mi'kmaq tribe of Nova Scotia. Dillon was the marathon's official starter this year, as the city of Boston finally recognized Indigenous Peoples Day. Before dawn on Monday, the chairman of the Boston Athletic Association read a statement acknowledging that the 26.2-mile course runs through the homelands of the Massachusetts, Mashpee Wampanoag, and Pawtucket people. Back when marathon organizers announced they were moving this year's race from April to October because of the pandemic, they were roundly criticized for scheduling it on Indigenous Peoples Day. But in the end, the schedule change is what led to the land acknowledgement, something we commonly hear at events in the West. But it was remarkable to see that happening in Boston, a city that has spent the last 200 years celebrating its white colonial history. And that is what brought Secretary Holland to Boston. She wrote in The Globe that she was running for missing and murdered indigenous people and their families, for the victims of Indian boarding schools, and for, quote, the promise that our voices are being heard and will have a part in an equitable and just future. And, by the way, she finished the marathon with a very respectable time of 4 hours, 58 minutes, and 54 seconds. So congratulations again, Secretary Deb Holland. That's it for this episode of The Landscape. Thanks again to Representative Stansbury for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. And we always love your feedback. We love your ideas for guests we should talk to in future episodes. You can send those to podcast at westernpriorities.org or find me or Kate on Twitter. We've got links in the show notes to all of that. So on behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, I'm Aaron Weiss. And I'm Kate Gretzinger. Thanks for listening.